0: For most of us, our home defines us. This is particularly so for older people, whose home becomes their last vestige of life as they reminisce. It is a symbol of their receding personal identity, and a memorial to their former lives. It is also a haven, a refuge, and a place of respite. Your parents tread these repetitive paths through their home, following the age-old domestic routines, sleep with that long-term before-and-after-dark companion, their bed and its accessories and are surrounded by comforting memorabilia from the past. They awaken to familiar sounds and are reassured by the idea that their neighbors will always help. The car gathering dust in the garage is a painful memory of what once was. They fraternize with pesky pets, the African lovebirds, furry felines, or lazy Labradors. Their fate is as important as their own. When in need, their home is a friend indeed. I am happy to accept that as aspirational. But when does that mutate from utopia to dystopia? As your parents may live in a state of increasing introversion, their home will become a refuge, the proverbial castle, a bit like Mont Saint-Michel, untouched by the lapping tides of change or the dark scudding clouds above. They will cling to mutual self-sufficiency, but eventually reality will climb the ramparts, lower the drawbridge and drain the moat. The reality is the changing of the guard of responsibility. They are and wish to remain responsible for each other. they annual guardians. At some stage, however, that will not be possible. The responsibility will then have to be delegated to the serfs, the adult children with a little bit of hired help from home carers. The breakdown of the aspiration evolves from the onset of physical reality. They can't look after the other anymore. The first sign, usually, is the ubiquitous fall, another big F word. They are no longer impregnable, they are now vulnerable. You will have to carefully unpick their dream weaving. For the adult children, these events come with a test of their devotional duty. As their parents' needs grow, the children are engaged in an increasingly stressful balancing act, their parents' fragility and fanatical desire to stay and the looming reality of the home becoming a disaster zone or at least one waiting to happen. Discussing the birds and the bees with your teenage children is a parental discomfort with many parents avoid. It is nothing compared to the unavoidable and uncomfortable it's time discussion with your parents.
1: Welcome to the Good Reading magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello, and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking with Brian Hurd about his book, Avoiding the Aging Parent Trap Essential Information and Solutions. It's published by Big Sky. Brian Hurd is a lawyer working for more than 20 years at the frontier of elder law and specialises in the disputes and dysfunction brought on by ageing parents. Brian is a passionate advocate for planning for ageing. Brian Hurd, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast.
0: It's a pleasure to be here, Greg. Thank you for the invitation.
1: I've got to start with your intention with this book, Brian. What were you hoping to achieve by writing this book?
0: It came out of some despair in some ways, because as you mentioned before, I've been practicing in elder law or law relating to older people and their families for over 20 years. And what I've discerned from that time is two cultural aversions that we have as Australians. Firstly, a failure to confront the future. As a result of failing to confront the future, we fail to plan for the future. So we have our elderly parents Who wait for something to happen and we as adult children seem to watch them waiting for something to happen. That's a cultural aversion we many have in terms of both our own future and our parents' future. The second aversion we have is a factual aversion. That is, we don't accept that there are consequences to living longer. The longer you live, the more you'll go through what's called a frailty creep. That is, the longer you live, the more frail you become. It's a, it's a way of nature. The result of that frailty creep, unlike previous generations, is that we enter what's called dependency. We become dependent on other people because of our frailty. And then when you overlay the propensity for older people to contract dementia, you start to realise that the ambit of dependency is huge, and it's all because we live longer. But because we don't face these two aversions... We then end up as families in what I call a C-change, Greg. That's not S-E-A, that's capital C. Capital C stands for crisis. We end up in crisis management mode because we haven't planned for these. And as a result, families become frantic and they start to flail and they fail as a family. My work is full of families who have failed. They've failed in addressing the future now. Classic phone call, Greg. You may remember it. I don't know. The hospital rings and says, Your mother's in hospital. She's had a fall. Uh, There's nothing more we can do for her, but she can't go home. Now, if you're one of six children, if that's the first time you ever anticipated getting a phone call about your mum in those circumstances, and those six children are spread all over the world between Equatorial Guinea, Guinea Bissau, uh, Houston, Texas, etc., suddenly, Children are being called upon to come together, to collaborate, to cooperate in a time of crisis. And of course, as you would know, the worst decisions are made in the time of crisis. And that's what many Australian families go through, that sea change mode. And that was
1: the inspiration for your book. I guess. That
0: was the inspiration for my book. The thrust of the book is to give us as a family a site of the future to forewarn us about what's going to happen and then to forearm us in relation to that. So it's a solutions book as much as an analysis book.
1: Quite early in uh, this book, Avoiding the Aging Parent Trap, you used the term family governance. What do you mean by that
0: term and what are its components? Family governance is taken from the corporate world in some ways where they talk about corporate governance. So corporate governance is the corporate term for how you run a company well. So I apply that to the family. Of course, the family is like a business in itself, and it certainly becomes a business as our parents age. So I call it the business of family. Good corporate governance or or family governance means, as I indicated before, accepting what these issues are that we have to confront and then going through a family planning exercise. I actually use an agenda with families. In fact, after my interview with you, I'm also going to be talking to a family about putting together what's called their family plan. You might have done some family planning earlier in your life, Greg.
1: Well, I wish I had, but um, no, I didn't. Well, it's happening
0: now. (laughs) A lot of people have gone through family planning in another uh, zone, as it were. So this is latter day family planning. And in these family planning governance exercises, we go through a standard agenda with the family about issues that they need to understand, to confront and then to resolve. And then we do it up in a form of an agenda and then we have minutes of the meeting. So everyone is on the same page about what they need to know in terms of the options for their parents and what is best for their parents, hopefully in consultation with their parents who are still able to do that perhaps. So family governance is simply the family coming together in the business of their parents' later life.
1: And just reading through a list of suggestions that you provide in the book, there's a couple that really struck me and I kind of immediately thought, why didn't I think of that? Mm. The first one is show some courage, raise the issue.
0: That's right. It takes courage to go to your parents and say to them, mum or dad, I think you need help. And, the inevitable response from a parent, I know I've been through it, is I'll let you know when I need help. So the parents will be resistant. They will be in denial. Not only that, the more you harp on about it, the more they'll think you have some sort of subterranean motivation, some illicit agenda. Before you have the courage to raise it with your parents, it really helps, however, to have the courage to raise it with your siblings. Because if you can get your siblings on side to address your parents, The parents suddenly see that all the children are now coming to them, as opposed to one of them. If only one of you go to the parents, that is all sorts of subject to to frailties and difficulties, which the parents can run a D9 dozer through. But if all the children come together to the parents and show that collective courage, that can convince the parents more than simply one of you in a one-off situation approaching the parents.
1: And that leads me to the next suggestion or one of the next suggestions which is it doesn't matter if you don't like or get along with your siblings be inclusive not exclusive as much as it may rankle
0: that's right it is so important because in every family usually a function of the size of the family there are going to be views we have about our siblings some good some not so good and some views we have about them are to the extent that they would be useless when it comes to the issue of supporting our parents. So you don't even confront them or in fact raise it with them because you just have this presumption they'd be useless. But once you start enforcing those enmities and jealousies, that then creates an old new area of dispute between your siblings. And you haven't even got to your parents yet because they're the next in line as it were. So to the extent that you've got to accept that your parents' best interests are the best interests of the siblings collectively, You've simply got to repress those underlying feelings and views you have about your siblings for a loftier purpose. The loftier purpose is the, the best interests of your parents. So that requires also a certain amount of uh, courage as well in order to push that aside in terms of your views and confront your own siblings with what's really important here, not each other, but our parents. So let's do it together. Let's collaborate as opposed to uh, create dissension or dysfunction
1: get help for your parents to identify what could be in store for them what do you
0: mean by that what i mean by that is i also have discussions with parents about the the do nothing approach to life in other words uh, it's a bit like aversion therapy what happens if you do nothing about a b c and d parents the consequences of doing nothing about these things are really bad so bad, in fact, that if you're concerned about leaving a legacy where people will say nice things about you at your funeral, and they will say it genuinely, then you need to do something. If you do nothing about confronting the future as parents and accepting the realities of aging, then the reality wills that your children will regard your legacy as an implosion. In other words, what you have done by doing nothing is left all these problems to your children. You have bequeathed them with problems. And that is no good for your family. The legacy that leaves is a legacy of implosion for your family. So if that's the legacy as parents want to leave, do nothing. But if it's not the legacy you want to leave, then do something. And these are a few somethings that I'd suggest you do. And those somethings are things like legal things you should do. Because dying without legal things is very, very bad. We'll come to that in a
1: moment. But mm. before we finish on this topic, how soon is too soon? How soon decisions? is too soon?
0: <laughs> When when either or both of your parents are starting to show signs of frailty, uh, for example, if your mother says to you, as my mother said to me one day, your father is becoming really difficult. Uh, He's very demanding. He requires all these things that I do for him, and it's really affecting my health. I'm getting depressed. When those sort of conversations are had, even if you simply ask your mum or your dad, how are you? How are things going? Eventually, they'll say to you, not well, they will because they won't be stoic forever. So when that point is reached, that's the point to start pressing the button. That's the point to start getting this agenda, getting your siblings on board and to start raising the issues with your parents, because at least one of your parents can see because of the stress and strain on them that they need to confront it themselves, let alone for their partner or their spouse to confront it. So those first trigger points are easy to identify. Don't wait for the fall. The fall can be too late, that big F word. The reality is do it before then. Once you see the change in patterns of their conduct or behavior, once you see things like uh, unusual things like, you know, putting the washing in the fridge, that sort of thing is uh, a sign that things are going awry. So when you see those awry signs, that's when it's time.
1: The art of family diplomacy, it's quite complex. And it's funny, that just seeing that term written down, family diplomacy, it immediately makes sense. And you raise this issue of a family harmony agreement. What is it? And what are its typical components? How does it work?
0: It um, is a document. And its I emphasise it's a document. It's a written document uh, because too few families document their relationships. We have an aversion to doing that. Uh, But this is a document that documents, as a result of our family planning meeting, what the aspirations are of the family. In other words, can we come together on what is best for mum and dad? Can we all agree on that? And the document really just records what those aspirations are. And because it's in writing, it's a permanent record of what all the family have agreed, are the mutual aspirations of everyone, the individual aspirations of mum and dad, and that everyone is on the same page. That's really important because that's the basis for ongoing harmony. It's the basis for ongoing decision-making where everyone is saying, this is the theme of our family reflected in this harmony agreement. And this is how we're going to act, inconsistent with anything else we may think about it, but consistent with... What we've agreed is the way to maintain our family humming in the future against the strains and stresses that we are going to confront as our parents become more frail. The pressure increases and this is like an aspirational dream. You stick on a fridge and know that that is the basis upon which all decisions will be made in relation to your parents' future. It's really useful. Let's talk
1: now about another really important document which is a will and the consequences of not having a will. Your book contains a great deal of real-life scenarios involving the consequences of not having a will. Um, And one in particular, which I think might resonate with many people, is not having a will with the rising spectre of dementia. In legal terms, what are the perils of not having a will with respect to
0: dementia? The legal perils of not having a will at all are, that you die without a document that says what you want to happen to things that you own when you die and the result of that is because you haven't said what you want the law steps in and says what you want and the law says if you die without a will the first 100 this is in queensland the first fifty thousand dollars of your estate plus what's called the household chattels will go to your spouse if you have one the rest of your estate will be split equally between your spouse And your children. So, suddenly, on the day you die, by not having a will, your children become immediately entitled to a share of your estate. Now, that may not please your mum or your dad, the surviving spouse. And in fact, I have cases where it was disastrous because the only asset of the estate was a house owned by the husband. It was just in his name. And he died without a will. The consequence of what the House was the only significant asset. and Therefore, that asset had to be shared with the other children, as well as mum. The consequence of that was, of course, the house had to be sold. So mum was out on the street because dad didn't do a will, and as the result of that law. Now, dementia complicates it as well, because if you do nothing, that is in many cases a conscious decision. That is, I decide not to do a will. I want to leave a legacy of implosion to my family. But if dementia intercedes before you make the decision to have a will, it's too late. Because if you have dementia and that dementia is such that it interferes with your ability to make decisions, such as to understand what is a will, what should I put in my will, and is it fair and equitable as between people who would expect to be provided for in my will if you're at a point with dementia where you can't understand those principles, you simply cannot make a will. And as a consequence, a valid one. Therefore, you're left with this dying without a will consequence, which is, as I said, strewn with examples of families imploding because of the failure of a parent to do a will or the failure to do it promptly and resulting in leaving it too late when they can't do one. So it was... It's. It's something to bear in mind because dementia, as I understand it, over the age of 85, there's a one in four chance that we will suffer dementia. And the trouble is, many of us are getting to that magic age. So once we get to 85, the prospect of getting dementia is a one in four. Now, if you accept that, presumably you should race off before you get to that magic age and do everything you need to do, because you've got a one in four chance, which is a high chance of getting dementia after that age. And again, that's a fact that we avert our eyes to that fact and we do not raise it with our parents. Mum, today's your 85th birthday. It's time. It's time to do something.
1: This conversation is prompting me to do my will tomorrow. Do something. Brian.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I want to talk about another subject now. And I was really astonished to read that men over 85 record the highest suicide rate of any age group or gender.
0: Why is this? It's always a curious thing because the the prospect of men surviving women in the 80s and their 80s is quite low. In other words, they call it the masculinity index, the number of males per 100 females. Up to the age of 80, the number of males normally exceeds the number of females. Once you get past the age of 80, that proportion reverses. So the number of females exceeds the number of males after the age of 80. So the number of males reduces over 80. And what you find with older men is that if they lose their spouse, for example, and they have been married for eons, they lose, in some ways, their rock. And they seem to react less favorably to the the wife or the female spouse losing their husband. Somehow females can carry on better than a male who loses their spouse of many years. And the consequence of that is men are more fragile. I don't know whether it's the nature of our genes, but the reality is, despite the fact that they're traditionally seen as the stronger sex, the reality is they become the weaker sex once they get to that later age because they have a dependency on their spouse that they lose. And when they lose that dependency, I saw it with my father, that dependency on my mother, which was very acute towards the end of his life. And it's something you didn't really see very much of in their early part of their life, but it became a significant part of his later life. So men find a great sense of loss when they lose their spouse, and they find a great difficulty in finding a new way forward, in finding new things to do, finding something to give them a reason to be, because they've lost the person who has given them a reason to be. And men are very bored at finding reasons to be. At the age of 85, for example. So that can be the only reasonable explanation. Uh, they're just not the stronger sex anymore once you get past that age.
1: A lot of this conversation and uh, the contents of your book really are directing us towards what we might call the end and preparing for the end. Why should we prepare for the end rather than wait for it to happen? And What are the essential things we should attend to
0: in preparing for the end? I've already perhaps alluded, Greg, to the consequences of not doing things properly in anticipation of the end. Uh, The reality is, if you don't do things properly and the end comes, what you leave on Earth uh, is a wrecking ball. Because you haven't done legal things, for example, the reality is your children have to pick up the cudgel and try and fix what you failed to fix. That legacy of doing nothing leaves nothing for them to admire you about and leaves them in a situation where inevitably there will be disputes between them. Because where the children have to resolve the issue of your estate because you haven't done it yourself with a will... That is guaranteed, and I can tell you after 20 years of experience that is guaranteed to result in disputation between those children. So in not doing something in anticipation of the end, you are leaving a legacy of lassitude uh, and a legacy of loss for your children in terms of what they have to deal with. If you don't do a will, we've already talked about that, and if you don't do it properly, we've already talked about it. If you do one, but it can't be found... The reality is you haven't done one. So the reality is the sooner you do it, the better, because the sooner it's going to be that in that transition to heaven, you will leave back here on earth a family that still loves you because you've done the things that make them know that you love them. In other words, you want to leave them with an ordered life as opposed to a disordered life. And we never stop being parents, Greg. Right to the point of our death, we remain a parent for many of us not all of us but many of us so that parental responsibility goes to the point of death and if you don't take up that responsibility you will leave what you don't want to leave as a parent that is a family which implodes
1: Ryan, i've got to say the degree and the amount of wisdom contained in this book is immeasurable and thank you for joining me on the good reading podcast
0: greg it's been a pleasure and thank you for the invitation
1: I've been talking with Brian Hurd about his book, Avoiding the Aging Parent Trap, Essential Information and Solutions. It's published by Big Sky and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name is Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.